The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, I'd like to start today's show with an apology, more like a mea culpa. And in our previous show, when we talked about the rise of Confucius Institutes in Senegal and in parts of West Africa and Mandarin education going on across the continent, I used a term that really wasn't the best way to describe what I was trying to express, and it certainly did not express what I meant to say. So I used the term French West Africa, and thanks to Simon Manjang, who was very, very kind and emailed me and reminded me that that really is not the best way to express it. And I really meant to say French-speaking West Africa. And uh, so I do want to apologize for that because I know how important languages and these terms have a lot of meaning. And I really just also want to make sure that you, our listeners, are always welcome to correct us, to modify us, to give us guidance, because we rely on that to stay faithful to what we're doing and to give you the best information possible. So thanks, Simon, for helping keep us honest. Kobus, today on the show, we're going to be talking about really one of the most fascinating subjects, particularly in this day and age when trade is in the headlines all over the place. And it's really about the business of doing business in China. And particularly among Nigerian traders who in cities like Guangzhou are far and away the most populous of all the African migrant communities. And Nigerians are known around the world for being very, very savvy traders. China, of course, is one of the most difficult places in the world to do business. But if you are importing low cost goods in high, high volume, there is no better place to be than Africa. Kobus, it's really been a very, very sensitive issue for a lot of people in Africa, in part because these the flood of low cost Chinese imports that a lot of people attribute to Chinese merchants are actually being brought in by the likes of African merchants. Many of them are Nigerian. Yes, this is this has been a big uh, misconception, and frequently Chinese traders are blamed for, for example, causing local industries in Africa to to weaken. Um, while in reality, very frequently, the flow of goods from China to Africa is arranged by middle people. You know, people who select goods, who target particular markets, who do all of the all of the work to obtain the goods and ship them. And you know, so so it's a it's a much more complicated situation than it looks. From the outside, and also it benefits a lot more people in Africa than is frequently seen from the outside. What's complicated is not just the trade politics of it, but actually how do the products get from the factory to the ship all the way to Africa? And very few people have insights on this that we're able to kind of have an opportunity to peek behind the curtain to see what actually happens there. And so we're really excited today to have the opportunity to speak with Judiofor Anekanu, who is a Nigerian trader, online businessman, and also a graduate of Nankai University in Tianjin, where he received his MBA. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much, Eric. And nice to meet you, Kobus. 
Yes, Jay, why don't we get started and tell us a little bit about your background, because I think your background is so fascinating to how you got into running an online store called Savannah and Joy. It's uh, savenjoy, S-A-V-N-J-O-Y.com. I'll give you a little free plug there, uh, <laughs> where you are actually sourcing materials and, and products in China and selling them to customers in Nigeria and the new, in the UK. And you've had an opportunity to visit at least 29 Chinese factories over the past few years to get an insight on what Nigerian businesses need to know. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came from Nigeria and all the way to China and what led you right now to working in the manufacturing sector? Okay, sure. I arrived in China in 2014, September, to study an MBA. Before this time, I would never have thought I would come to China, not for any adverse reasons or anything negative, but I just never thought about China as, you know, being somewhere where I would go to, you know, it was too far away from Nigeria. We are used to going North America and Europe, you know. So uh, in 2014, I was, okay, where to go? I need to go study further. And I had just returned from the UK. Uh, unfortunately, I felt the fees in the UK were too expensive, you know, to study an MBA in the UK or in the US. It's like looking at a hundred and something thousand USD. And I remember the friend of mine had studied in China, you know, for a bit, just a few months as an exchange student. And then I wrote to her and I'm like, hey, how was China, you know? And she's like, mm, I don't know what to say. I think you just go and find out for yourself. And that was it for me. And I went online. I started reading about China and everything sounded interesting, the culture, the people. And online, I applied for a school randomly and I got admitted to Nankai University. Coincidentally, we were the first set of international students coming to Nankai University to study an MBA because, like you know, Chinese uh, colleges are all taught in Chinese. So their MBA has like one of the best MBA schools in China, but they had no international department. But in 2014, they decided to have one and we were the first students. So even though I applied to Peking and Xinhua, I was already too late. This was in June, you know, and it was school was to resume in September. So I was too late that the only people who were admitting students at this time was Nankai because they wanted more international students. So uh, that was it. Anyway. Fast forward to arriving in China, I was excited because sequel to this time in Nigeria, I would order things online for people, you know, via Alibaba. So coming to China then was now more interesting. I'm like, oh, okay, I can visit those um, suppliers, those factories and uh, all that. And uh, that's it. You know, so I arrived here, started my MBA. First two years, I didn't have so much time to do any sort of business, but I was looking forward to holidays so that I would be able to visit all those factories and see manufacturing processes for myself firsthand. When yeah. you started actually trading from China, what were some of the, the biggest surprises and biggest challenges for you when you started? Oh, so when I started trading from China, some of the biggest challenges was reaching the factories because, of course, many of the factories that deal in fast-moving consumer goods are in the south of China in Guangzhou. And I was living in Tianjin, which is not of China. <laughs> and uh, contrary to what many people think, you know, like they think everybody in China, once you say, oh, I want this product, they know how to help you get it, how to find it. It's different, you know. So I found out I had to start looking for these uh, suppliers myself. I had to, you know, find my track and my way to do this. So this was a big challenge. 
Well, in your time and going back and forth to the factories, you've come up with some tips and to advise people. Uh, and you really want to help other Nigerians and other Africans on how to do business in China, because this is a really rough and tumble place. And so you've come up with a list of uh, some pointers. And let's run through five of them very quickly. And so I'm going to ask a couple and then Kobus will get his turn. So you've number one on your list and number two on your list. Identify your product and research product varieties. Walk through us and try to be as specific as possible about the African aspect to this, because a lot of these rules apply to anybody coming to China. But what is specific to Africans about these tips that you're going to give us? Okay, so in identifying your products, I like to refer to a certain niche of people now in Nigeria, in Africa. They are growing and they are called the millennial entrepreneurs. So these millennial entrepreneurs, like I call them, they are people who have been working nine to five jobs. You know, they're probably from middle class homes, good education, have lived abroad, but they're kind of getting fed up of working and they're like, oh, now I want to do something of my own. I'm creative. So the first thought that comes to their head is China. I can buy stuff. I can sell to people here or even better still, some of them want to make, you know, their own clothing or whatnot. So in identifying the products, they have issues because it's just a thought in their head. They think in China, you can buy whatever for whatever price and all that. But it's not exactly so because a product has different components that make it up. There's the quality of the product. There's the price of the product. And there's you know, the landing cost to you down in Africa or in Nigeria. So many millennial entrepreneurs don't factor in all this properly and also add their profit margin. So a lot of times they start ahead of themselves and they find out at the end of the day that, oh, they spend either too much energy on this and they don't make what they think they will make or they spend too much money on it and they didn't factor in all the little expenses along the line, like for shipping or for getting the right quality that will get them the right price for the product. So this is what I talk about when I say identify your product. And uh, going down to researching the product varieties, one product may have a lot of varieties, you know, like we all know, I mean, beer is beer, right? But there's many different brands of the beer. And depending on maybe the condiments used in making each one, is what determines the price. So this is a serious issue because many people don't think about it clearly like this. And they just think, oh, I want to buy this, uh, this hair, for example. And maybe that hair you're trying to buy doesn't really work much, you know, in the market. And uh, the one that's really giving people the top profit is some other brand, you know. So you have to know the, the different varieties for you to be able to identify the particular product that would, you would sell and make maximum profit and encourage your business to grow. You know, if not, you get burnt out along the way. You mentioned the working out the landing costs. So I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit of some of the problems, some of the complications of working out what the landing costs are. And then also, I was very intrigued by one of your one of your tips, which is understanding the seriousness of your order. So I was also wondering, like, what you mean with that? Okay, about the landing costs, you know, when you buy a product, you first you procure from the factory. Secondly, the factory has to ship it to you. So in between these two scenes, it's possible that this product is going to stay in a warehouse because like we know you live in Nigeria or somewhere in Africa and you buy this product. So of course the factory needs to send it to somebody. So they send it to a warehouse. When they send it to this warehouse, that costs money, you know, to stay in the warehouse for some time before it moves on for onward uh, shipping. Although now in most cases, the people who ship the goods 
from let's say example and for example Guangzhou those people now have a warehouse and they charge you nothing to send your products to them in their warehouse but for a simple trader who's online buying a product in Nigeria from a Chinese person the Chinese man doesn't know about your warehouses his own problem is just selling this product to you and you giving him an address to send it to so basically the landing cost gets accumulated from paying for the warehouse paying for the shipping down to nigeria then if you use a an agent in china for example to procure this product then you also need to pay the agent something so when you add up all this that's what the cost you get here in china then when it leaves and gets to nigeria as well maybe you're living in a certain part of nigeria and you need these products to come down to you in your you know where you are so the products land in lagos and you're living in port Harcourt, so you need the product shipped to you in port Harcourt. there's also some money you pay for the transportation you know and you also pay for the clearing so when you add up all this this is the cost of the product then you have to add your profit so by the time you add all that and add your profit, that's it. That's the landing cost. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So one of the things that makes China unique is its ability to generate enormous quantities of product. And it can build things. I mean, it can do 10 million iPhones in three months. It produces out of the world's 15 billion pairs of shoes that are made every year, 12 billion pairs are made here in China. I mean, the scale here is unimaginable. And you talk a little a little bit about the importance of understanding quantity, because this is one of the places that, boy, they can deliver quantity. And understanding quantity for a trader is key because that affects the price. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what Nigerians and African traders have to understand when doing business here and placing orders with Chinese manufacturers and the importance of quantity. Okay, so many Nigerian business people they want to buy a certain product, but they probably just need a few as samples to start off with. And knowing the Chinese factories, what really gives them the kick to sell you the product is when the quantity is huge. Because when the quantity is huge, then that means that the factory can purchase the raw materials ahead of time at a cheaper price, you know, save money on that, set up an assembly line for your products, then produce your products. So if the quantity isn't high enough for the factory, then it's of no use going to the factory to buy it. You'd rather buy it from a wholesaler. But many of the people in Nigeria and in Africa, some of them don't understand this concept. So for example, she wants to start a business and she needs to buy 10 pieces of different hair as the sample, you know, and then she sends you, oh, hey guy, I need to get this from China and I need to get it from the factory. By the time you walk through the factory and explain what you want to buy, it's insignificant. And then you find out that even at the cost that she has to buy the hair, it would be cheaper for her to buy it in Nigeria, you know, because if you're not making like a minimum of 1,000 pieces, you know, then 
the price doesn't go down. If you're going to buy a hundred, you find out that it's just like the same retail price in Nigeria. So many people get it very twisted, you know, when they call you and they're like, oh, I want to get this. And you're like, okay, hold on. And by the time you do the back and forth with the factory, you give them the price and they're like, wow, it's, it's too expensive in China. I bought it in this place for this amount. I bought it in the US for that amount. And then you explain to them, yeah, that's true. But the thing is in China, if you want to get a good price, then you need to have a large quantity, you see. So that's basically how it works. For example, um, there was a certain client whom I was going to make bags for. And it was it became kind of a runaround because the quantity she was looking at and the frequency of the order and all that just, just wasn't matching up with the Chinese factory. So they couldn't do it. Um, one of the very interesting uh, tips that you give is that you have to keep convincing the Chinese manufacturers that you are serious and you are enthusiastic about the order. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so what I mean when I talk about the seriousness of the order is that there's certain people, you know, who want to make something, especially in the niche of the millennial entrepreneurs. And they have a brainwave. They're like, oh, I'd like to start doing this now. You know, it looks like something that will be prosperous and all that. But they never think through all these processes that lead to production. And when they don't think through the processes that lead to production, then they give up along the line. So for us, we see that as the person not being serious about the order. That's one part. On the Chinese side, on the manufacturing side is... There's a lot of factories out here whom service European industry, North America, you know, and they are used to setting quality standards. They are used to a certain price range, you know, and when you come to them and yes, you're from Nigeria, it's a big market, you know, many people are doing this. They really don't understand yet how that market functions so it takes some convincing you know to let them understand okay no yeah, this could happen you know and all that for example a factory that produces shoes or bags they know the styles that are in vogue you know they can tell you in 2014 this was the you know autumn autumn edition of this shoe this was the uh, summer edition of that shoe but because where we come from is not yet up to this, uh, we don't yet function in that structure. So there's still not a clear understanding of what's in and what's not, you know, where we come from. So this is one serious issue where you need to, you know, convince the manufacturers and let them see that you could actually bring them, you know, a certain new niche market that they don't know about. You talked a lot about apparel and textiles, and that is one of the largest exports from China to Nigeria. Uh, and it's particularly sensitive in Nigeria, especially in the north in Kano State, where there's been a lot of discussion that Chinese imports and a, just a wash in Chinese imports there have displaced the textile manufacturers in northern Nigeria. And, and that makes sense because, as you've talked about, the China price is very, very hard to beat. But there's a lot of anger, not just in Nigeria, but in many parts of Africa, towards the Chinese for undercutting local producers. And they say this is really endangering economic stability in many parts of the continent. Now, when you and I were talking last week in person up in Beijing, I brought this up to you and I was kind of suggesting that it was Chinese traders who were doing this. And you corrected me in saying that actually it's Nigerians who are behind this. Explain to us a little bit about the, the dynamics of the textile trade between China and, and Nigeria and Africa in general. 
Okay, in terms of the textile trade, uh, we call it Ankara. So the Ankara fabric is one that the Nigerians and Africans in general really like. And there used to be a lot of production in Kano, you know, a long time ago. But the intricacies of what led to those factories shutting down, you know, and what happened there are not really clear to me. And it's not something I would really, you know, give you a clear point out and say, this is what happened, because I mean, a lot of things could have happened. But when it comes to the aspect of the Chinese bringing in the cheaper Ankara and the Nigerians, you know, buying from them, it's obvious that this business was mainly supported by middlemen who were traders that had experience before now with China. So they found out that this fabric could be made in China and the factories were willing to make it for them at cheaper prices. So like, I mean, it's probably unethical, right? But a businessman would do what he has to do to sell his product. So to a large extent, I blame more of the Nigerians for killing that Ankara business in Nigeria and not the Chinese, because before any Chinese person does business in Nigeria, they have to have a middleman. You know, before you can do business on that scale, there's somebody who leads you and says, okay, I'm here. We can do this together and I'm going to give you the backup that you need. Of course, the factory never would take products worth $2 million out of China and just head to Africa, right? They have to pass through the border. They have to clear it, you know, pay certain fees. So there's usually somebody who's there who's going to receive you and let you get an inroad into the market. Remember that the Chinese don't speak English and more so the people in that area are houses. So they don't even speak English as well. Talk more of Chinese. So there, there's definitely middlemen. But on the other side of the fabric trade between Nigeria and China is even something more interesting. In the north, there's the Ankara, you know, coming from the cheaper Ankara fabrics coming from China. On the southeast, there's a city where we know, we all know, and it's very popular to everybody in Nigeria. In fact, I would, I term it as the China of Nigeria because long time ago, these guys in Aba, they started to reproduce or copy famous brands and they were making like really amazing things but somehow they did not get so much support from the government so it never took off and if i recall correctly this was around the same time that china also started to you know do the same you know copying and making um, similar products but chinese got the support they needed and their industry took off and now china is unstoppable in manufacturing back to the aba boys in aba they are well known for fabrics for shoes, for apparel in general. I mean, there's many, the, these guys are exporting products to all African countries from ABA. So there's the secondhand market in China where fabrics which have been rejected by factories in China for not meeting probably the production specifications, you know, or one reason or another, as well as excess fabrics, you know, out of excess production, there's a market somewhere in China where all this fabric is sent to. The people who buy the fabrics from the factories are the Chinese men, of course, the locals. Then they send it to the market. But the guys 
who buy the fabrics from the Chinese people when it comes to the market are mainly Nigerians. So this is very interesting because just along my way, you know, of traveling and going to factories, I ran into this place and I found out that, wow, it's a very interesting setup. The trucks land at this place maybe at 5.30 a.m. in the morning. The boys hop on the trucks and they start to pick all these fabrics. Of course, it's a mixture of different fabrics. Is it chiffon? Is it cotton? Is it nylon? You know, that whatever. So the idea is to look at the fabric and pick as much as possible of this fabric. And then it gets weighed on a scale. And when it's weighed, you pay whatever, you know, you have agreed with a man. Because when any truck comes, he says, oh, this truck, I'm going to sell every fabric in this truck for X amount. So it's a a flat figure, you know, he says, okay, every fabric here costs 10 yuan. Then that's it, right? So when they weigh it for you per kg, you pay that amount per kg and that's it. Now, the boys who go on the trucks to get the fabrics down, they live in China mostly and they live in the area. The guys who come from Nigeria to buy the fabrics, they come from Aba to buy the fabrics and they take it back to Aba to sell. But the very unique thing is that both the people who live in China and the guys who live in Nigeria all come from Aba and even in Abad, they all come from a certain village, you know. So it's very inspiring to see because these are people who know about this business for ages. Their parents have probably been doing this. Now it's rolled into them doing it and everything. So they, if they, their eyes are closed, they can even tell you what a fabric, you know, what a fabric quantity and, and quality is. So that's uh, what's unique about the two different sides of the fabric business from Nigeria to China. And if you were to to give advice to to Nigeria on how to improve the apparel business, either you know in competition with China or in by through imports from China, like what is the best way for, for Nigeria to be to regain some of its competitive edge? I would say the best way to regain the competitive edge is to invest in building these factories in Nigeria. That would be the best way it would be to start up these factories in nigeria and start to manufacture there there's really many different ways that it can be done for example fabrics are in different styles and there's they come in they pro they are produced they're manufactured in different ways now there's some new techniques such as digital printing digital printing is easily done on certain fabrics such as polyester, silk, these fabrics can be digitally printed on easily. But cotton and the other ones, they usually need a more tedious type of manufacturing process. So my advice would be to look at the easier ways or the easier fabrics that we can make in our place. And probably we buy the raw materials from here or even from Africa or wherever we get them from. And then we can probably digitally print things like silk and um, polyester, you know, and take over at least a small chunk of the manufacturing while we wait for when we can have proper huge factories running again to start to produce the more tedious styles of uh, production. But the problem is that it's, uh, it, it's difficult to do all this without power. So I think still we, back home, we need some infrastructure, especially in the power sector. That, that's what's going to be the real determiner. 
You know, the big takeaway for me from this discussion is how it's so easy to reach conclusions based on reading news and talking to people. But when you actually hear from someone who's inside and who's actually been in the factories, knows the traders, knows where they're coming from and what they're looking for and how complicated this all is, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And Jidio for Ahaneku is a, an expert in this. He's running a store called Savannah and Joy, Savanjoy, S-A-V-N-J-O-Y.com. So if you live in Nigeria and you're listening to this, you can buy things from China through that store. And it's fascinating because he's going to the factories to get it. Uh, it's really amazing. And he's a graduate of Nankai University in Tianjin, where he did his MBA uh, back in 2016. And he's really part of this amazing generation of young Africans who are in China. And I had the pleasure of meeting Jay uh, last week at uh, at an amazing event called Africa Week, where there was just uh, dozens of young Chinese and young Africans from all over the continent who were just doing so many exciting things. And Jay, you are part of that generation. Congratulations on finishing your MBA and Thank launching you. a successful business and for really helping the world better understand the complexities of the Nigeria-Africa trade. And we really appreciate uh, your time for joining us tonight. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobus. Kobus, what I found most interesting in the discussion was the talk about Kano, because for years we've been hearing about how these low-cost imports are undercutting local producers, and this has been a source of tremendous tension. And to hear Jay explain the complexities that to blame simply the Chinese uh, really is missing a big part of the story. And again, I'm not here to defend the Chinese. Whatever trade practices they do that may not be ethical or reputable, fine. We'll let them defend themselves on that. But I think Jay's point on this is that there are so many interests that are at stake here because he kind of referenced unethical. And I don't think it's unethical for business people to look for a lower price in order to compete and to sell products in order to gain market share. That's just the way that business is done. And at the end of the day, we've always talked about how low prices, while they hurt producers, are great for consumers. So it's really not a simple issue, even though a lot of people really want it to be a simple issue. And blaming the Chinese is certainly an easy way to do it. Yeah, what was also very interesting for me was the how it all comes back to electricity in the end. Like there's so much there's so much that Nigeria can do. Um, you know, there's so much creativity and, and energy in Nigeria. And, you know, as soon as there is electricity, you know, switched on, then Nigeria can make a ton of money. Because already now, Nigerian pop culture, Nigerian fashion is very influential in places like South Africa. And you see, you know, things like headscarf styles and so on are starting to kind of migrate from Nigeria to South Africa. And there's a big kind of cultural back and forth between the two countries. That kind of fashion industry could be massive as long as there's electricity to churn out all of those headscarves, you know, so, so it, it all comes back to those like basic development issues. And that's one of the reasons why when it comes down to China's engagement in Africa, power becomes really the central point here. And the investment that the Chinese are making in coal-fired power plants is one that's extraordinarily controversial given the, the carbon emissions that come from it. But I think to your point, Kobus, when you're having to make a choice between brownouts that lead to unemployment and stagnant economic development and carbon emissions that are very dangerous but that will be felt years from now – for a lot of policymakers, it's a clear choice. And this is the choice that they've made in China, where we struggle with the air here. But keeping a lot of people employed is a big, big problem and a big challenge. So you're right. Power is the issue. So it's funny that in our discussion today about trading, 
We've touched on imports, we've touched on employment, we've touched on power, and on all of these issues cross-sect one another, and it's just really what makes this discussion so very, very interesting. We'd like to hear what you think. What did you think of what Jay had to say? Uh, do you agree with the fact that he's kind of bringing all these low-cost goods and he's helping Nigerians and he's really competing with those local producers that are really, you know, potentially jeopardizing jobs in Nigeria, but at the same time, he's bringing a, a world of products as well to, to the marketplace and, and bringing efficiency that are desperately needed in places like Africa. So what? tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on so many different platforms and channels. LinkedIn is where I'm at. And Kobus, I think you're developing your LinkedIn presence as well, yes, right? Yes, I'm slowly, slowly oh. growing my LinkedIn base. And and I was very excited last week that you uh, did your inaugural uh, commentary uh, for our new newsletter. So Kobus wrote a commentary. Every week, Kobus and I are writing little short commentaries on a brand new newsletter. We want to welcome all of the followers and subscribers to the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University who've joined our newsletter that we do in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witz University. So between Stellenbosch, Witz, and us, we have this really dynamic discussion going on over on our newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter at the ChinaAfricaProject.com website. Uh, we'd love to have you join us every week. We're selecting five or six of the best stories. Our podcast is there, as well as a long, in-depth read of the week that we pick as well. So our editors are curating that as we speak speak right now. We deliver that every Monday for you right into your inbox. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.